Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. I'm Jenny Jagman. I'm Eva Garmendia. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Welcome, everyone, to this last episode of the AMR Studio for the year 2020. Today, we are featuring an interview that Jenny did with our Associate Senior Lecturer in Organic Chemistry, Lyndon Moody, Dr. Lyndon Moody. And you are going to hear a lively conversation about where is he coming from? How did he end up in AMR? Because he hasn't been in AMR for that long. Uh, we hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome to this month's interview. Uh, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Lyndon Moody with us today. Dr. Moody, would you mind presenting yourself to our audience? Hi, so my name's Lyndon and one of the associate senior lecturers from the UAC. And I was hired in April 2019, and I'm based in the Department of Medicinal Chemistry here at Uppsala University. I guess I would call myself an organic chemist when it comes to what I do in terms of my research. Mm -hmm. And I guess the main thing that I'm trying to do is trying to find new starting points for antibiotic drug discovery. Okay. How long have you been looking at or using organic chemistry for the AMR issue? Um, not very long, to be honest. So <clears throat> when I, I originally, I'm from New Zealand mm -hmm. and I did my sort of my undergrad research project in organic chemistry and then a PhD. And this is very like, I guess you call it pure organic chemistry. We are sort of trying to make molecules that may not really have any reason. More for the curiosity or the, the science of it and not applied. Yeah, absolutely. So I was working in a field called total synthesis. Okay. So different bacteria, plants, sponges, everything. They're really good at making complex molecules. Mm -hmm. so these complex natural products. And I guess for the last 70, 80 years, it's been a bit of a theme of trying to see if we can make these complex natural products in the lab. And I mean, often they do have biological activity and you'll see a lot of the current medicines are based on natural products. Mm -hmm. So they do have some use and it's a bit like, kind of like Lego, sort of <laughs> trying to build these molecules and there's thousands of different ways you can do it. So you've got to try to sort of figure out what's a, a good way to do it in terms of what's going to work yeah. in terms of the order that you make the bonds and which pieces you glue together. And also there's a bit of like, you kind of want to do it in an elegant fashion. <laughs> want it to look good in the end, the, the whole yeah, process. Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of, I guess it's one of the things about the field is there is a bit of snobbery about how you make the molecule. <laughs> if you do it in a boring way, people aren't so interested, but if you do it in kind of a more interesting way, mm -hmm. I guess it's the same of like chess or something like that in terms of you might win the game, but there's different ways you can do it and some are prettier yeah. than others. It's not just the, the end result. You kind of want to... You want the process to look good. You want it to be, to look nice all the way through. Yeah, it's the journey. But I mean, it often isn't practical. Often it takes years and years to make them and you get such small amounts that you can't do anything with it anyway. Mm -hmm. But there's been a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a shift in more recent times where people have been a bit more critical about, well, why are you making these things? Okay. So now they tend to try to make these complex molecules so they can really look at what the bioactivity is making more of it mm -hmm. and being able to sort of diversify the molecules. How do you feel about that shift? My impression from a lot of research fields are that things are moving from basic science research with kind of no end game incentive 
to applied science trying to really get it makes it sound very negative but i mean it is good to do things for a purpose but yeah. there's a huge benefit of basic science seemingly purposeless work because it, you find things that's where you find a lot of the these really useful things in the long run yeah i mean it's it's got to be a balancing act right yeah you've got to be able to have funding available for people to just be doing fundamental things and mm -hmm. and i guess also trying new things that are a bit crazy and a bit more out there but then we need if scientists want to have a good reputation and want to help deliver technology and medicines and all these things i guess we've got to have it at all balancing up yeah i guess it's easier to justify to the general public something that's applied and such but it, it, it is sad sometimes to think that there's a lot of fundamental scientific research that's kind of getting lost yeah absolutely um but i guess personally in this this area going to more applied mm -hmm. um for a start i was against it because i'm kind of you know a bit stubborn <laughs> as we all are yeah absolutely and then with time when i saw people doing some really amazing work being able to make say antibacterial compounds and being able to use the same like synthesis pathway to make a large variety then make the natural product but also make like non-natural versions that are better antibiotics and things like that you kind of see that a lot can come out of it and it's still very clever work and still really interesting yeah so and it's also probably it's harder as well so the, the intellectual challenge is actually i think greater mm. trying to do these things but no so i mean that's kind of where i sort of came from and by the time i was finishing my phd kind of just i knew i wanted to do a postdoc yeah and i knew i wanted to go overseas i mean new zealand's a long long way away from everything i mean we grew up with australia being our closest neighbor and it's still three or four hours away on a plane yeah so we are really quite isolated and the idea of going to europe or somewhere was quite appealing mm -hmm. and i kind of just got lucky um, an email dropped into my inbox asking if i wanted to go and live in norway and do some science <laughs> that's nice so i kind of said sure you know seems like a good idea and this was more i guess looking at more applied because by this stage i was thinking it's fun to make molecules but it'd be good to make with a purpose mm -hmm. and this is with a guy called Jan Svensson and he wanted to do was try to make molecules for putting into paint that you could put on the bottom of ships to stop the biofilm growing on the ships okay because this is quite a, a big problem like yeah I mean the amount of additional drag that it creates what that means for fuel costs around the world and cleaning costs I mean it's it's billions of dollars like more recently the paints that were being used are quite toxic to marine life. I was about to say, there have been paints, I think. I mean, the, this is something that's discussed sometimes in this part of the world because we have a lot of fishery business, mm. that there have been paints, but they're also often very bad for the environment from what I've understood. Yep. They're very toxic and not degradable in any way. Absolutely. So, and I think there was some treaties or something like that signed yeah. that blocked these. So, I mean, there's quite a big market for like trying to figure out some new solutions to this problem. Mm -hmm. And his idea was basically to take molecules from plants that the plants put out into the soil to stop other plants from growing. Okay. So he kind of thought, well, maybe if we have these, it might stop algae and other things growing. So we kind of, we ended up taking a molecule that grows in the crawberry. It's one of these berries that grows everywhere in the Arctic regions. And we kind of made different modifications and we tried to see whether it would stop the biofilms forming 
not on boats, but more preliminary studies. So you're kind of trying to take one type of compound to try to stop, I guess, organisms that are cover quite a wide range of, of life. And we found some molecules that were that were good, but not quite good enough to try to turn into a product. It's a difficult process to go from the basic science there, trying to find, you know, which molecules are good to use and which one may be like that step to, can it actually be used in a product? Yeah. I mean, we did some basic studies of putting them in, in paint and then submerging them in, mm -hmm. in the ocean and they kind of did okay, but it wasn't super amazing. So, no. so from there, one of the things that um, I kind of felt I was missing was that we use these molecules and we kind of knew they were active, but we didn't really know why they were active. We didn't know how they were interacting with the different organisms and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then an opportunity kind of fell my way to go across the border and a thousand kilometers or so further south to Umuo, <laughs> which I guess is further north from here, but in Toronto, it's certainly south. It might south. be another thousand miles north of here, but... <laughs> yeah, so, and there was kind of more into like a chemical biology type project. Okay. Chemical biology is kind of a hard thing to explain because it's, I was about to say, I don't actually, I wouldn't be able to explain that. <laughs> it's kind of using chemistry as a tool to answer and ask questions in biology. But I mean, it's not just chemistry, it's everything from proteomics to imaging. So it's a very, very broad field. Kind of in that gray zone. Yeah. And it's probably research that's been done for quite a while, but hasn't never really been called chemical biology. Mm -hmm. um, I think the best definition I've heard or the most accurate is chemical biology is stuff that's done by chemical biologists. <laughs> I think that kind of is the best yeah. definition. But basically, I look at it as a way of like, how can we use chemistry to ask questions about biology so was it more that you were looking at like mechanistic things like why or how yeah those kinds of questions yeah absolutely so the project i ended up working on was looking at um legionella bacteria mm -hmm. causes legionnaires disease and they make these small molecules uh, for quorum sensing okay and think quorum sensing is kind of this way that bacteria use to communicate with each other mm -hmm. so that a whole lot of bacteria can decide when they become virulent or when they go dormant or when they so it's kind of like a i don't know kind of like an, an election but yeah. it's this, this decision making process and they use it by putting out these molecules and they can all sense how much of the molecules are around mm. get a feeling of how many of them there are basically in, a, in an area and sort of involved in some other projects sort of in this chemical biology area but that's kind of when I then from Umea I ended up here with the UAC and medicinal chemistry mm -hmm. so like I never really saw myself as working in AMR or knowing anything about AMR but it sounds like I mean I can see the connection between all of these is a very good introduction to to focusing on AMR I never really saw that until kind of recently and yeah when I saw the job being advertised and I kind of wasn't going to apply but then I kind of because it's quite looking at antibacterial antibiotic drug discovery and I've never really specifically done that mm -hmm. but um <clears throat> I kind of thought that this is a pretty tough field I mean it's hard to find antibiotics and yeah I mean against gram negatives there hasn't been new mode of actions for like 30 years or something like that yeah or there's there are very very few and far between so I kind of thought well Every project I've worked on has had some link to bacteria mm -hmm. and I'm 
kind of I've learned how to build molecules and I've kind of learned a few ways we can use them as tools to find out about biology. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got thinking about it. And then I sort of somehow ended up here, I guess. So it, it's interesting for me to hear that you that you didn't see this connection because I mean to me it sounds like a very a very natural jump to go into AMR from that. But I mean, I understand everything always, if you look at it from the outside and after the fact, then it always looks a lot smoother than it is. You know, I guess I figured they would be looking to hire someone who already does research in antibacterial antibiotic drug discovery. But I guess it's the thing with USC, when you look at what projects are ongoing, it's a lot of them aren't what I'd think of as being classical AMR type research. There's some pretty interesting stuff. I mean- No, it's- a lot of trying to trying new things and trying to get new perspectives and well, the best way to do that is really to get people that haven't done it before yeah i mean i'm like say teresa we uh, had an interview with her last month i might be getting quoted wrong here but she i don't think had done a lot of work no but she was working with some pretty cool technology and thought well could we use this technology i know i guess that's pretty important for finding new antibiotics is the current model it's not working really well anymore exactly we basically know what doesn't work and we're not that sure about where to go next. I think yeah. a lot of people basically are like, okay, well, this isn't working. What do we do now? Yeah. And then it's nice to get um, new perspectives. And like you say, uh, for example, Teresa bringing in just people bringing like, okay, well, I, I have this, this is what I do. This is what I know. How can I apply this? How can I help? And it's a, uh, it's a nice field in that sense. You get a lot of, um, you get a lot of people bringing what their, their skills to the table. Yeah. And I guess it's when you think of like, I guess, new technologies, I guess, machine learning mm -hmm. and these things is quite a, quite a big thing Yeah, that everyone kind of has been talking about. And you see more funding going towards building up these skills, which, which is great. Mm -hmm. But it's like, how do we get, say, for looking at from an antibiotics perspective, how do we get these people to come across into the antibiotic research and help out? I mean, yeah and it's not just machine learning it's, it's a bunch of different types of technologies i mean we might have problems that they can help solve that they're completely unaware of you know it's mm -hmm. yeah or there might be people who have had long and successful careers working in different types of working in cancer research or something but their skills might be really awesome transferred towards antibiotic research so how do we kind of promote people to come in and it's not just antibiotics it's you know diagnostics and everything you know like yeah it's uh, i mean a lot of things i think would benefit from it, it's hard to work interdisciplinary and especially maybe like you said maybe towards the end of your career if you're very specialized in one field it might be kind of hard to see how you can apply it elsewhere but i mean i think that's honestly some of the best best times yeah so, i mean if you if you're really good at something, it can be a challenge, but it can definitely be rewarding, I think, to turn it in a different direction, try to use it for something else. And in the case of AMR, it's pretty easy to see the potential benefit to humanity if we really over-exaggerate maybe, but you know what I mean? It's, yeah. It sounds cheesy, but it's uh, it can be very useful. Yeah. But it really does require that people kind of go step outside their comfort zone and try to look at their knowledge and their skills from the outside and see, okay, how can this be changed? And also maybe just present their work to people outside their field and say, okay, do you see a use for this? Do you see a way this could work? Yeah. I know one thing I like talking about, like other scientists, and I found Uppsala is quite good at this, is you can sort of meet other people and chat. I know it's kind of nice hearing what other people's problems are. Yeah. Because, you know, because you always look, so I'm always looking at it from a chemistry perspective. Mm -hmm. And the same goes that mm -hmm. if I'm talking to a biochemist, they're looking at it from that perspective. So it's kind of nice to kind of get, hear the different sides of these stories as well. I think. That is something we, we actually like asking people too, is uh, if 
we basically ask how does your perspective coincide with others but it's nice to see like this is this feels quite natural to you the kind of I don't know I get the impression that you have an interdisciplinary mindset from the start in a sense you're very you seem very comfortable with your field but you seem very good at also seeing benefits and kind of using it that way a little bit um well I think like I'm probably heavily insecure about how much I don't know about microbiology and like that care would you nobody can know everything I mean you have to specialize in something and then everybody's got their limitations I think in terms of what I'm doing at the moment and what I want to do it kind of means that I just kind of dip into microbiology mm-hmm. bits and pieces and just kind of for example like the human microbiome I guess is something in the last five ten years has become an area of a lot of research yeah. and I've always found that kind of interesting that we're walking around with a, a kilogram or two of bacteria in us and mm-hmm. we only really hear about it when we get an infection or something goes wrong but I was always kind of for a long time just kind of fascinated just wondering what these bacteria are doing yeah and so I sort of just started reading up about some of the areas and read some of these fascinating studies about the impact of what your bacteria can do for your health and so I started just reading that but I was always keeping an eye out for anything to do with molecules yeah, I kind of felt that was where I might have just a tiny bit of understanding in some way. I'm kind of interested in bile acid. So bile acids are produced in, in the liver. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're released and they help like with dietary fats and solubilizing them and things like that. And most of it gets reabsorbed in the GI tract before it gets too far. But yeah, a small amount of it, a couple of percent, ends up down further down in the in the gastrointestinal tract, and it seems that they have like they can get modified by bacteria okay and then these modified um acids they have an impact on some infection site outgrowth of various bacterial species especially like c diff mm-hmm. so it's kind of like modified acids kind of have like a protective effect mm-hmm. so i kind of just reading that sort of story and going oh yeah this is kind of interesting yeah it is interesting but then approaching it from a chemistry perspective I want to look at bile acids and say, well, like, what is a slight modification? And it's just one atom out of a whole bunch. Encourage C. diff to grow versus stop it. Mm. So I want to try to find what proteins are interacting with in the C. diff. Mm-hmm. And then kind of think, well, could that be some sort of drug target and try to develop drugs around that? And I mean, this has been known for 30, 40 years, but no one really knows exactly how it works. So for me, I don't know much about microbiology, but I kind of just look at it and go, that's kind of a cool little problem maybe chemistry can kind of make it a bit clearer yeah and then maybe that can be used as some sort of starting point making new drugs that are selective against c diff without killing everything else hopefully but i think this is a good example of like i said people bringing their skills to the table i don't have to be a microbiologist to like you did you know yeah read something interesting and find an area like an open question that hasn't been answered that you can bring your skills to the table and kind of look into it and it's also that you find it interesting I think that is one thing that makes a very good researcher and someone that especially can work well in interdisciplinary fields is that you are comfortable kind of looking into other fields and saying oh well this was interesting yeah even if I don't know this this is cool and kind of how you can go from there I mean that's a big step of working in different fields is purely just finding common interests I think yeah so it's sort of currently what I'm I guess doing at the moment is just trying to find these starting points because as we kind of mentioned before the like new types of antibiotics aren't very common no and a lot of the antibiotics we use are 
you know, come from the 50s and the 60s and 70s when we were sort of discovering a lot of new class. Um, but yeah, more recently, it's kind of getting tough. So I think we've got to look for different ways. And I feel like your approach, I mean, your approach seems to be a lot like, let's find a target first or like kind of find some understanding of the mechanism that would be behind it. While historically, a lot of antibiotics have been discovered by accident or in natural products where we maybe don't understand. Yeah. I mean, there's antibiotics used today that we still don't understand how they work because they were discovered so long ago that we didn't need to know how they worked when they were approved, basically. Yeah. Uh, nitrofuridin is one that comes to mind. Like, we don't know all of it, and that would never pass today. You have to know how something works today. Yeah, absolutely. And even things like aspirin and things like that. Like. Yeah. There's a reason why we have a different order of doing things now and stricter regulations, but it requires a different way of thinking, I think. And it seems a... I get the feeling that your way of looking at things and your pro- working process is a little bit more useful. I mean, it's um, it's kind of hard to predict what's going to happen, you know, but it's sort of just, I mean, I'm interested by it. So I'm just happy to hopefully try to keep coworkers in my group interested as well and see see how it goes. I mean, but I guess we the, the key thing is we need like new targets and we need sort of new types of molecules. Yeah. So this is actually something we've started asking people recently. And I particularly actually like asking people that are kind of new to the field about this. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think is missing in AMR research? And do you have any wish lists for how things can improve or how we can move forward? I, I guess it's coming back to this, like assimilating new technology into the field mm-hmm. and getting new perspectives in the field. It's like, how do we get people to AMR research from different fields? Mm-hmm. Um, this whole, say, machine learning thing or like digitalization or even like, say, things within drug discovery that haven't really been applied to antibiotic research that might have been used for cancer research. Mm-hmm. Basically, how do we bring in new technology? Like, how do we identify what ways there are to solve problems that we're not really aware of? Yeah, I guess it's hard to come from like the AMR side of it to be like, okay, what can be useful to us it's a little bit hard to understand but i guess having to throw out like a, a fish hook of like please if you have anything come <laughs> come here yeah i guess just saying we have this problem and trying to put some like general description to the problem so that anyone can kind of understand it and then someone would say oh well we have these techniques from this field mm. but like specific enough so that people can be appealed it's a very hard balance no yeah, absolutely yeah uh there's another thing we like to ask so we like to ask people what they find is often misunderstood in their field. And in this sense, we can mean, you know, you as an organic chemist, as you identify yourself, or if you think there's something misunderstood in AMR research, basically when you're talking to friends and family or even other researchers, is there something that often comes up as a misunderstanding? Um, I think what we've kind of touched on a few times, I guess, is that like drug discovery and getting from a initial finding in the lab through to something that's in a clinic mm-hmm. and is safe and works and people can take just how enormous that gap is yeah and how much time and effort and money goes into drug discovery yeah it really is, it's like a black hole onto, i mean for a while there of just like resource time and money and everything until you get to the end result if you get to the end result yeah, it's not just a matter of just going, okay, we have to spend this much time, we'll get there. It's, there's a lot of drugs that 10 years of work goes into by a large number of people when it, it doesn't get there. Yeah. So like, yeah, it, it is a really, I guess a really difficult thing. Like, Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to wrap up with a, one last question. If there's anything else you'd like to add to tell our audience, if you have any research that's going to come out soon or something like that, or if you're happy with 
what we've said so far? Uh, I think I've probably talked enough. Okay. <laughs> but if there is any um, anyone listening who's kind of interested in finding out more about what we do, feel free to, to get in touch. Yeah. And I guess especially if there's anyone who's working in the field and is more on the biology side of things but has perhaps some sort of projects that might involve chemistry, then let me know. I'm always very open to trying out things. And I mean, it's a great way to learn is to be involved in projects about things. So just yeah. feel free to drop me a line. Sounds um, great. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It's been yeah, fun. thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was fun. Welcome back. Uh, Ava, what did you think about this interview? I think it was really cool to have an organic chemist talking to us and especially talking about natural products because, well, as many of you might already be aware of, you know, antibiotics, the majority of the antibiotics that we had for a really long time were actually natural products. I also am a big fan of, you know, the approach that Lyndon takes in his work, which is getting inspiration from nature and trying to understand how nature works in order to develop further things we need, like for example, new antibiotics. And even though making or remaking natural products in the lab is extremely difficult, I really love that what he's trying to do is to understand how these natural products are working. What are the perhaps the minimal parts of these natural products that we need in order to make new synthetic or lab-made products that will work in similar ways like mm-hmm. those natural products so it was really cool to to hear him explain how he actually got to the point that he's it now right yeah absolutely like I mean I said this in the interview that it was it's so interesting to me that he doesn't see the path to AMR because as someone who like is super interested in AMR has been for a long time comes from this interest I'm like oh I see like this is re- this feels really useful for this and like when he worked before with looking at um, preventing biofilm growth on ships and that sort of thing, that's just a different kind of antibacterial and it's a different uh, medium. I mean, you're looking at ships and not patients, but it's very similar. It's, it's a very similar experience in a way. And mm-hmm. it can definitely be beneficial to have that background. Yeah. So I, I think it sounds like he's ended up exactly where he's perfect for. But... I think Lyndon is a person that is like extremely curiosity driven. And I think he is a person that... Uh, can take on a small thread of thought of an idea or something that inspires and that could be related to and then start like pulling it from that thread and trying to make yeah. story from it so I think that's that's what happened to him on the way to get here you know and also mm-hmm. we mentioned this with Teresa before as well but it's really nice to have these young researchers these young people that are not afraid to you know look wide at how the things they are interested on and the skills they have and the knowledge they have gathered from their previous experiences can be applied to a new field yeah it's something to you know to acknowledge and to appreciate Mm -hmm. and it's very I mean it's evidence of a good interdisciplinary scientist in a way I mean that you really read something in a slightly different field and you kind of like pick up on this little thing like oh but that's cool I wonder why this works I wonder why that's the case and like it's like you said curiosity driven which is absolutely the best way I think in science and ends up in this whole new field basically and I mean it's it's great to me to see that path personally you know that because he just came into this field like and he said it like you know that he might be a bit conscious that he doesn't know so much about the field or that uh, starts as low but that's that's to be expected right like you come into a new field there is so many nuances you need Absolutely. to kind of learn 
but uh, I'm very happy that he was able to join the UAC and I, I think great, uh, great things are going to come out of a project like mm-hmm. his project. I really enjoyed this conversation from a very personal level because my, my dad is an organic chemist that's worked in anti-infectives uh, in his life and in the industry setting, not in a, as much in an academic research setting. But I wanted to bring up one of the things that he mentioned when we were talking after the interview, which kind of ties into how he, I love that he at the end asked people to contact him. Mm-hmm. And I think Teresa did the same. I mean, it, it's a sign of like an interdisciplinary scientist again, I think, to really just like, yeah, reach out, let me know what's going on. Uh, but he mentioned that it would be nice to have old data sets from drug targets or drug hits that kind of didn't, you know, go fully through. They were, there was something that went wrong in the process along the way and the, the projects were put aside. Th- these can both be beneficial because somebody can pick up a project. There can be new knowledge, new information uh, that can maybe keep something going. Like mm-hmm. why it failed before might not still be true. It might there might be a way around it. There might be new information, or it could also be you know helpful to know what didn't work. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think um, traditionally this antibiotic research has been performed more in a industry context than yeah, academic. Context, absolutely. In academia, you are more prone to, you know, have public databases and sharing even negative results, which don't get published that often. It, it's something that we are more used to. I think in an industry sense, you know, like you are working in a big project, you are trying to develop an antibiotic further and it stops working. It gives you too high resistance levels or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And then you basically in the next executive meeting, you kill the project and it stays there, right? Yeah. And it's basically not intentionally buried, but it's just completely put aside. Yeah, because it's not really the focus of, of the company to really make use of that. Data. Exactly. But maybe now in the situation that we're in, trying to find new antibiotics and new ways of uh, maybe modifying things that didn't work before, it would be extremely useful to have uh, this data available. Yeah. So I fully hope that somebody can contact him with, uh, or that this incentivizes in some way, somebody to release some information. If it doesn't exist, I think there's definitely a room for it. Mm. I vaguely remember, and I might be totally off base here, but I think there's some new incentives that tie this together. Like if you get some sort of funding to do mm-hmm. work with this kind of thing, then it's also tied to that you have to publish even like the failed results. I'm not sure. And another thing that we found interesting to maybe bring up or talk a little bit more from this conversation is um, the model organism and the particular infection that Lyndon is working with, which is uh, Clostridium difficile, known before. Now it's known as Clostridioides difficile, or easier for everybody, C. diff, yes, as it's known. Much easier. <laughs> and um, this infection, it's of particular interest to work with and understand and try to target in the context of AMR because this is what is called mostly an opportunistic pathogen or like opportunistic infection. Generally, healthy people are not going to suffer from C. diff uh, infections, but mostly are patients that have been undergoing antibiotic treatment for a long time or they are in some sort of immunosuppressants like cancer patients or HIV patients or um, elderly patients, transplant (laughs) patients and so on and so forth. So this infection, as Lyndon was mentioning, is of particular interest to find some uh, targeted treatment, you know, because it, this, this becomes a big problem when people are actually messing up with their microbiota by taking a lot of antibiotics, for example. Mm-hmm. 
you want to find a way where you can just target this specific pathogen that is creating the problem. And maybe it's perhaps worth mentioning as well, if anybody out there has heard about these uh, fecal transplants, right? Yeah. Fecal transplants have actually been used to try to control the C. diff infections by restoring a healthy microbiota. It's very interesting that he is chosen or he is working in this particular system because we need to find a way that, you know, people that will have to take antibiotic treatment, you know, people that have gone through sepsis or have bloodstream infections or people that have long-term multi-resistant infections that could be like, you know, UTI infections or some other sort of infection, Mm -hmm. they're going to have a long-term antibiotic treatment. And if those people cannot be treated with targeted antibiotics, you know, very narrow spectrum antibiotics that will kill the infection they're suffering, they are going to be treated with broader spectrum antibiotics, which is going to affect a lot of their flora and potentially is going to um, get a a C. diff infection. So I think this is a very good example of, of an area on AMR where, you know, specific treatments are needed. Yeah, absolutely. Just last thing, one thing to mention, because I just, I thought it was so beautiful that he mentioned a little bit how organic chemistry in, you know, more a traditional and historical way, it's it's more about craftsmanship than really the compounds that they are making, you know, that that people wanted to praise the most elegant way that this molecule was made and how you think about the different steps that can be taken to make these molecules. And that he made the parallel with like a chess game, you know, you can win chess games in really many ways, but the way that that chess game is played out and, you know, opening game, the middle game and the end game, how does it happen? It's really what is praised for and what good chess players are known for. So I think maybe a lot of people now can understand this parallel because there is this TV show that is super famous on Netflix and here in Sweden it's been like super number one for (laughs) since it came out. So I think that, that he used that parallel is actually very useful in this case. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think with that, we are done for this month's interview. Yeah. And we're going to move on to the new section, which we have two interesting topics to talk about. See you there. So, Eva, can you start us off with the, the first news article we want to talk about this month? Yes, I am very happy to bring a news article that is also news for our Center for UAC because this is uh, the first article published by one of our PhD students, Bronwen Holloway. She has uh, recently published this article on the journal BMJ Open in open access, uh, was accepted on 8th of November and is already available online. So since it's open access, anybody that is interested in knowing more in detail what this paper is about can just go to the link in the show notes and uh, download the full PDF. This article, this work is uh, actually touching up on something that we already talked in the podcast before, which is behavioral change related to AMR and in particular to diagnostics in this case. The title of the article is Utilization of Diagnostics in India, a rapid ethnographic study exploring context and behavior. As we have already talked a little bit uh, before here, the ways that one can look into how behavior and behavioral change apply to AMR are rather different. So some people argue more about the individualistic behaviors playing a role into how we treat AMR issue. Mm-hmm. Um, others argue more towards looking at behavioral change or behavior models more as um, comprehensive and uh, context-wise. So it's not so much about if the individual wants or wants not 
to you know behave in a certain way but it's more about understanding what are the motivations what is the context the opportunities and how capable people are of undergoing the behaviors that you are studying so this article is basically looking into exploring the factors that influence behavior in the use of diagnostics by caregivers of sick children in this particular context, which is in India, in a hospital in India. The idea is that if diagnostics are used in the proper way or optimized to the maximum, you are going to get more targeted treatment and therefore there's going to be also an optimization of the antibiotic use. And what they did was to actually go to India. Well, she is, is her and other collaborators here from Sweden and some collaborators from India. They did field work studies by doing uh, observations, like four months of observations there. Some observations were a little bit more unstructured and some observations more structured. And then they also did one-to-one -one semi-unstructured interviews with the caregivers to, you know, overall understand what are the reasonings why the caregivers will decide to undergo diagnostics if the doctor has suggested it or not. And they analyze all the evidence and all the data they gather using a um, behavioral perspective model called COMBI, which we have talked about it before when we talked about healthcare work uh, motivations regarding antibiotic use. But basically the COMBI model um, looks into what are the capabilities, opportunities, and motivations that would influence a given behavior from the individual. Uh, so in this case, basically, it's like, are they capable to, to say yes to this diagnostic in particular? So do they actually believe in that the diagnostic is needed? Yeah. Do they trust yeah. the doctor that is trying to, to tell them that they need to do it? But then that's the capability side, which is more the psychological and the physical ability of the person. Yeah. But then you have the opportunity is like, is the contexts around able to make them undertake this diagnostic method? And then is the last part, which is the motivation from the individual. So what mechanisms are they are they present that might activate or inhibit the undertaking the behavior? In this case, you know, getting the children to get the diagnostic. Yeah. I think it's really interesting to look into things like that, right? Because yeah, absolutely. You have the observations and you really try to understand all these nuances and factors that might be affecting and therefore you might be able to implement new ways or change the ways that are already present to benefit Mm -hmm. the, the the patients. And I think this study in particular is a really good example of the benefits that can be taken from looking at it through this method. Mm -hmm. So they found that I, I think about half the patients, the patients being the children, they might have gotten the tests, but they never uh, came back for a follow-up visit or consultation. But in, I mean, that's a really big number if 50% aren't going back. While at the same mm -hmm. time, they found that everybody that they talked to had a high level of faith in the physician, that they believed in the test, they believed in the benefit of the test, and they trusted their doctor pretty much. I mean, there was very little data showing that there was anything lacking there, mm -hmm. which kind of brings you to think, okay, why is this happening then? And in many cases, these tests were very cheap or free, but mm -hmm. there were tests that did cost some money, and those were potentially for the those who had the least ability to pay for tests, of course, this was difficult. It was sometimes a hinder just the cost. Mm -hmm. But I like that they really go deeper into this and they look at, okay, the cost of traveling, the cost of lack of wages is a cost. If the caregivers have to miss work or do other things, it's about that it mm -hmm. wasn't at all that these patients didn't believe in the tests or didn't trust the doctors, that it's a combination of other factors 
that change the opportunities that they have or affect the motivation? I found really beautiful when I was reading through the article, you know, that the decision of doing the diagnostic or not is not something that the caregivers take on lightly. No. They actually weigh on all the different things to decide, should I do this? Because of course you have a children that you're caring for that it's not feeling well because yeah. it's sick in some way. Some might be more sick, some might be less sick. And your doctor is telling, okay, uh, it might be this, but if we do this diagnostic, we're gonna be more sure. And these are the ways to get the diagnostic test done. This is what you have to do after. Hmm. But there's also the possibility of maybe treating directly with this other thing. So they actually balance out all these different factors. Yeah. And mostly very quickly, you need to make a decision. Am I going to go through this or not? So sometimes I think we talk a little bit about these behaviors in a cynical way or something. It's like, oh, you are presenting. Yeah, you need to do this diagnostic. And then the person says no directly without thinking about it more. Yeah, it comes. It becomes very like um, black and white, you know? Yeah. I think you lose a lot of the context. And here the study included so much of the context and the thoughts behind it. And especially when you see these patients that go through the diagnostics and everything like that, and they don't return for a follow-up. And they mentioned in the study that there's a few reasons that sometimes they go to get the tests here and then go to a private clinic where they they combine based on their income. Basically, they can't get the test at a private clinic, but they can get them here. And then they take the results back to a private clinic. But that's also all about, you know, they're, prior- they're trying to do the best they can for their kids. And this is how they prioritize their time. And it's not a matter of not getting any follow-up. But it is mm-hmm. worth it for this hospital to understand why. And in some cases, I mean, the patients go through the diagnostics and don't follow through with follow-up. Those kind of situations, then that kind of, for me at least, rings like a bell of, okay, they stayed to take the test and they really tried and they obviously, they valued this, but they didn't go through with under, with the follow-up. And they did talk a little bit again about that in some of the results that sometimes the clinic would be closed or the clinicians wouldn't be there. And they talked about how some caregivers would ask the lab technician or somebody else who gave them the results to interpret them and say is this a problem basically mm-hmm. and they would get not this formal follow-up but they would get enough for them to be able to leave the same day and that was like mm-hmm. a central thing throughout this paper and these results that they see okay these people really would be benefited by getting results the same day that's the ideal situation especially in uh, in limited resources settings exactly. like we're talking about here And in that case, this is a great study to show a relatively simple thing that the hospital might be able to do to increase. Mm -hmm. And they talk about, you know, the lost resources that the hospital has. They spend all this time doing these tests and the consultancies with the physicians and there's no Mm -hmm. follow through. It doesn't go all the way through. It's lost resources on the hospital side as well. And it's obviously not as beneficial to the caregivers that want to give the best care for their children. Mm -hmm. So it feels like these small things, like they talk about just reorganizing how the different rooms are like these tests are very spread out in different places and that's like one of those things like okay maybe you don't think about it until you're in the caregiver's position and you're trying to find where you're going and there's long lines everywhere and it's not maybe the best system for the caregiver and then you have to get a consultation again which maybe is possible by phone maybe you could report that can you call me instead of me having to come back because a lot of people talked about that this increases a second day of lost wages and a second trip and it just increases the cost of this to a point that they might not be able to afford it. Uh, I think these uh, results also highlight the need for something that uh, is being taken on by the Longitude Prize, which is trying to find a diagnostic tool that is quick, easy, 
and reliable. And I think this ties very well with what we want to talk about for the second items in this new section. Yeah. Um, can yeah. you introduce for us, Jenny, what the Longitude Prize have been up to recently? Yeah, so the Longitude Prize uh, has recently been working on a publication that they published, I believe, on the 24th of November. It's called AMR Voices, and it's about the stories from the front lines of AMR during the coronavirus pandemic COVID-19. It's very interview-based. It's very nice to hear the perspectives of these different people, and it's their experiences, basically, in this pandemic and their thoughts and perspectives on how things will move forward and maybe the effect that the pandemic will have on antimicrobial resistance research and stewardship and basically the problem as a whole. They talked to a lot of different people, including a um, pediatrician that works in emergency care uh, and several survivors of AMR and how they've been impacted by the coronavirus pandemic, as well as, and this was the one that stuck out. I mean, this is a very interesting read. I really think everybody should take a look because it's pretty unique to get this many different perspectives from AMR patients. We talk about this sometimes that like you don't get to hear a lot from the patients and it's very useful to hear from the patient's point of view. But one of the ones that I thought was most interesting actually wasn't an AMR survivor, but rather a doctor physician who works with infections and specifically with AMR. He specialized in this and talked and worked with this as a problem, uh, who actually developed COVID-19 and ended up in the ICU. So it was a severe case. And in that situation, he was not only afraid of the uh, severity of the coronavirus infection in and of itself, but while he was there in the ICU, he was worried about getting a drug-resistant infection from the ventilator. I mean, as an example, that was one of the things that was on his mind. This is somebody that is really aware of the problem and aware of the risks where he was. And it struck me pretty hard that, like, you know, you're in the ICU for the severe disease that's scary. I mean, scaring the entire world at that point. I think he got sick in over the summer, so it was still relatively early. You're there afraid of the drug-resistant infection you're going to get. Like, that. I think a lot of people don't see the risk as on mm-hmm. top of the actual infection from the virus, you have this additional risk of any hospital care can potentially lead to infections that can, in hospital settings, more likely be to be drug resistant. I think this is just not talked about enough. Yeah. For some reason, I, I mean, there's always, you know, it's common popular culture or common knowledge, you know, that there is risk by being hospitalized mm-hmm. and that you are going to like I remember my grandpa always saying like when you go to a hospital you are more likely to catch more stuff in there than what you came in with (laughs) you know it's like general but people it's it's just like a general concept you don't really materialize it or you don't really visualize it as as a real thing or why is it happening or by which sort of pathogens or elements are you actually at risk of Mm -hmm. Um, and of course getting a secondary infection of any kind when you are undergoing hospitalization is bad, but getting a secondary infection with a resistant pathogen is even more difficult because the problems with treating it. Problem is that more and more, there are more of these bugs that are resistant. Mm -hmm. So the chances of one of these infections to be a resistant infection is higher. And I don't think there is enough conversation about this, hence the need for such a report like these AMR voices, where you are actually listening hearing from people this happens and uh, they mentioned throughout like you know one of the problems perhaps is like a lot of the people that get these secondary infections they die and they were therefore there's no voice for them you know and they also mentioned like a lot of these there's several different survivor stories here and they come from different points and I think they were all very all very good but something that struck me throughout with them was I didn't know this was a problem 
Mm. Like, I didn't know this was something that I should be worried about, basically. I got, like, the feeling that they were all surprised. Yeah. And then uh, many of them are now advocates and working on this, uh, informing people. And then they keep saying, you know, I tell people about this and they don't know it's a problem. And I, th- I think we are improving at talking about AMR. I do think the public knowledge about the issue is increasing. But one of the things that they talk about in this one, in tying it together with the coronavirus pandemic, is uh, a lot about education and we might be overusing antibiotics, we might kind of lose the focus on AMR because of the coronavirus pandemic, but also talking about it as an opportunity that Mm -hmm. we've had this experience now of doing like mass public education about a health problem. And in some cases it hasn't gone well, and in some cases it has gone well. There's a lot of different quality information out there, but it's clear that you can educate the public to mm-hmm. some degree and it's a uh, there's many or at least i can remember one now a specific survivor story where they're talking about how we really need to use this and sh- like this shows that we have the ability but everybody's got to work a little harder mm-hmm. to educate on it being somebody who's interested in antimicrobial resistance research and progress and everything like that this was a very interesting read because you get to really see this side of it that you don't get to hear it from that much not that often no i don't think it was that easy or straightforward for them to actually find these voices either you know no. because you need to find the patients yeah of course uh, it's good for example with um, antibiotic research uk which actually is the first non-for-profit community that works specifically with supporting these kind of patients yeah. of course you know uh, you work with doctors they might know someone but there is not a public voice no. per se on this so you have to really pick and try to find the people that have a... i thought it was also interesting a couple of examples of uh, someone that actually got phage therapy treatment and it worked. And even though these yet had not been settled as, you know, alternatives to antibiotics, it's also good to understand that uh, it happens, you know, that there are multi-resistant infections and there's no other way to treat them. Yeah. And sometimes there might be success. So understanding why those successes are successes and study this further. So. And that also brought up the fact that a lot of people travel for healthcare. And that's yeah. something that's been affected by the pandemic. Not only is your health in, qu- in question, basically, uh, but also we've based everything on a globalized world. And now the world is not as global as it was. It- it's harder to travel. If anything, I think this pandemic, it's kind of surfacing a lot of the issues we have in general. Yeah, I mean, you. it's I really hope that there's and this is, again, something that this isn't just me saying this is something somebody mentioned it in this piece as well. But I really hope that there's a push for an increased health infrastructure, because I think that's one of the things that's become very clear is how vulnerable some settings are because their lack of health infrastructure. And it's maybe been kind of patched together with globalization and other things like that. But we need to work that everybody has access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. As we're recording this, there's talk about vaccines being approved and starting to distribute things. And hopefully this is just something that gets even better in the next month before we mm-hmm. come back. But um I really think it's something that's going to be highlighted now is, okay, we have a vaccine, but how do we distribute it? And then the lack of health infrastructure in some areas is going to become glaringly obvious. There's only the positive side that once you identify the problem, then you have the opportunity to change it and try to yeah. find new ways, right? That we were talking in the... Once in the, the problem, problem is screaming in your face. Yeah. <laughs> we hope for that. Um, in any case, the whole report is also linked in the show notes. So we urge you and encourage you to take a, a read. It's not super long or dense. And no, it's, it's a very um, easy read. It's uh, yeah. comfortable. <laughs> Yes, and thank you to, of course, uh, Longitude Prize because of the 
the quest to try to find this new, easy, affordable um, point of uh, care tests that are needed in many places, uh, but also because they are putting effort to work on other ways, like, for example, bringing these voices to life. Yeah, absolutely. With that, we say bye for this episode and for 2020. Yeah, hopefully things are better next year. <laughs> An interesting year for sure. Yeah. I don't know if anything else, but uh, exciting things are happening next year, hopefully with the Uppsala Health Summit and some trying to go back to conferences and uh, hopefully more interviews and more interesting people to bring to the podcast. Yeah. Um, like always, if you guys have any suggestions, if you have any comments, if you want to reach out to us, you can do it either by email or you can shout out at, in Twitter with the hashtag Studio. We are monitoring that. And otherwise, we wish you a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you everyone for being with us this 2020 and see you in 2021. Bye. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.